with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Buck Sexton here with you uh, all now. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825 if you would uh, like to call in. Uh, before I jump into the latest on the investigation and uh, aftermath of the horrific shooting in Las Vegas. Let me just mention that over the course of the show today, uh, I will uh, follow up on what I promised to do yesterday, which is a uh, a deep dive into secession and separatism movements, uh, notably in Catalonia, which just had a referendum on uh, becoming independent, or you could call these independence movements as well, in Spain, uh, the Kurdish effort to achieve the same in northern Iraq uh, and what we should take from this and the national security challenges abroad that this creates, as well as the political philosophy questions it raises here at home. Even when it comes to, say, gerrymandering, what's a fair line of what's a fair line of deciding who's in one district or another, You know, deciding who votes and where is a very important part of the uh, process, isn't it? And uh, what is a legitimate vote, a legitimate referendum, and what is not? Um, We will get into all that in the second hour. Also, some updates for you on Trump in Puerto Rico today, coming up in the third hour of the show. And we'll be joined by uh, Cheryl Atkinson with an update on her lawsuit against the federal government, which is proceeding where she says the feds were spying on her. And this is going in federal court. And at some point, they're either going to have to go through discovery and we're going to find out what's happening here. Or they're just going to say, sorry, I'm not going to tell you about what happened there or didn't happen. Can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, but that all is coming later on the show. Let's start with the latest on Vegas. Um, so here's what here's what we know. We have some additional details because there was a, a, a press conference held by law enforcement right before I came on the show. Um, one of the rifles, one of the rifles that Stephen Paddock, the gunman, the gunman who now killed 59 people, wounded uh, more than 500 by uh, taking up an elevated firing position from the Mandalay Bay Casino and Hotel in right on the Las Vegas Strip. Um, we were talking about this at length yesterday. I know you are all familiar with the... Uh, basic details of the story, but we have some some updates here. Um, he had a bump stock device, which the left, this is immediately being turned into a gun control debate and discussion, that there was any modification made to an AR-15 in this case is going to receive a tremendous amount of scrutiny, and there will be demands for legislation, to be sure. Um, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. I think this is a discussion that we've had before as a country, and it, it does not uh, results in legislation, not because of cowardice or the NRA uh, power as a, as a lobby or any of that other stuff. 
there isn't legislation because they can't even come up with legislation that would address the problems that they use as the starting point, as the reason, the the impetus for that legislation in the first place. Right. So something happens and then you have a whole bunch of uh, Democrats and the Democrat media come together and they say, well, because this happened, let's make laws that wouldn't have stopped it, but maybe would stop some other terrible thing from happening in the future. That that doesn't that doesn't work. Uh, that that's not that's not compelling as an argument. As much as they may uh, the left may like to use this because uh, they are seizing on the emotions of the moment and trying to push forward in a an agenda, a political agenda. The argument just doesn't stand up. So, well, what do they want to do here? We'll talk about background checks. Well, this. Uh, shooter paddock would have passed background checks. We'll talk about uh, trying to limit different kinds of firearms. Well, he already, uh, it, it seems with his modification, well, it depends on what the modifications were, but he, he might have violated uh, laws with what he did in the firearms. But when someone's willing to kill hundreds of people, which clearly paddock was, and managed to kill 59 and grievously wound hundreds more, we, do we really think that changing a law would stop him. Um, there are. This is somebody who not only was willing to engage in the most heinous criminality, but also had no interest in surviving. This he was meticulously planning every step in this uh, mass killing. Um, anyway, so also we should note that uh, with with more details here that come out. We may get a better sense of motive, but I have yet to see that data point, and I'm waiting for it, and maybe it won't happen. But I have yet to see the data point where all of a sudden we have the beginnings, at least, of the answer to why. And it's, it's a completely understandable reaction for all of us after something so terrible happens to want to know why. We don't have that answer yet. And yesterday I was... I was very frustrated because I spent so much time throughout the, sh- throughout the day and with my team here pulling together research and doing everything we can to get to the bottom of it. Not that, I know that that doesn't bring anyone back who lost their lives, and it doesn't uh, make the, the horror of this entire situation uh, go away or, or lessen it in any way, but it, at least it gives us some sense of, the beginnings of an understanding of what happened, the, the beginnings of knowing, you know, we, we want to know how could something so terrible um, occur in in this country? And that's a, an understandable impulse to want to to want to get some answers. All right. So back to the details. Bump stock. Uh, also, Paddock sent thousands of dollars by wire transfer to I believe it's the Philippines, right? The Philippines. And that is Obviously, setting off some uh, setting off some alarms, raising some flags with the federal uh, or with law enforcement community that's looking at this issue, because well, why was he sending off money? Did that mean that somebody knew something? I've also seen now, based on what well, we've been told in, in this press conference, that the uh, companion we keep saying companion. I don't know why his girlfriend just not an acceptable, and I really mean this. I, I keep seeing them write companion, and I also people say, well, it was his girlfriend. 
Uh, is that because girlfriend is no longer a term that is supposed to be used? You know, they're supposed to say lady friend or something. And this is I'm being completely serious with you about I don't know why, because companion is I mean, it's his it's his girlfriend. Right. I mean, this is a romantic, a romantic relationship. Uh, I guess maybe we're supposed to say lady friend now or something. I don't know. Anyway, she's a person of interest. She is a, a person of interest now, according to the press conference. And I, I'm assuming it's because of the wire transfer and they're they're wanting to get to, well, you're you're out of the country when this happens. That sure, it means you weren't there. Obviously, it's an ironclad alibi for being an accessory during or you know accessory after the fact or anything like that. But it's also pretty convenient, isn't it? You're, so you're outside. The, now, this woman may have had no knowledge and nothing, but people are asking questions. These are these are fair questions to ask at this point. Happened to be out of the country when this happened. Didn't know anything. No one knows anything. That's what we're told so far. Everyone who was close to him can't shed any light on motive. That's suspicious. That seems strange. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not saying that someone's necessarily lying, but... It's odd. It uh, it certainly makes me wonder if everyone is being completely everyone that's spoken to law enforcement so far has been completely forthcoming. Also, uh, the gunman Stephen Paddock set up cameras in his hotel suite and in the hallway to alert him to when law enforcement was closing in on his position. Uh, this was entirely planned out. What was it? Uh, what was the final count of firearms they found in his room? I mean, he's. He owned dozens of guns. We know that. And there was, uh, I think, close to, well, I, I'll, I'll check on the number. The number's been changing throughout the course of the day, but he had a lot of firearms in there with him. He broke two windows with hammers, also saw that the uh, that, that law enforcement claims that he uh, had rented another room overlooking another outdoor concert. So maybe he went through something of a, of a dry run, you know, which we see in not to say that this was terrorism. We still don't know motive, so you can't know if it's terrorism without understanding motive. Uh, but in terrorism cases, many times people will go through a dry run. Um, and that's part of the plotting process so that they can, when, when they want to become operational, so that when they become operational, they don't make any uh, mistakes. And dry runs are sometimes how you, you, catch, you catch the bad guys before they can do Terrible things. Um, but he set up cameras in the hotel suite as well, which means that there is, uh, I have to assume, there is footage of Paddock engaged in this uh, this terrible crime. Um, that, that ex- will, will that ever be made public or not? I, you know, I don't know. But it seems that this is a, an individual who, or we can tell now, this individual who was meticulous in his planning and thought about this in many stages and was trying to maximize carnage and casualties and knew that he would eventually be found by law enforcement and was just going to either make a last stand, hence the cameras in the hallway, or take his own life, which is what he did. I want to wait before I, uh, I analyze more of the response time because it was over 70 minutes before they got to that hotel suite in the Mandalay Bay. That seems like a uh, a long time to me. That, that's just my instinct on it. Like I've never been SWAT. I'm, I'm not a tactics, uh, not a tactics guy. So we might bring on an expert later on in the week. But I, I do want to make note of, um, I do want to make note of 
that because in the Pulse nightclub shooting, that there were officers on the scene and there were still active gunfire inside that nightclub and they did not make the decision to uh, to move and go in and and engage, I, I think that was uh, very obviously the wrong the wrong decision. I think that there were lives that were lost that that did not have to be under the circumstances. Additional lives lost in the Pulse nightclub because of the decisions made about the response. If you go back, you'll see they were on the scene very very quickly in Pulse, and they kind of wait. I, they said that maybe they thought there was an explosive inside. Okay, but. If there's active gunfire and you've got a, a mass shooter situation, um, I think you got you know you're on the scene. You're the good guy with a gun as law enforcement. You got to go. Now I know in this case we're talking about just trying to find the shooter, and that involved uh, there's a lot of chaos and mayhem, and you know they're trying to save lives on the ground, and they got to trying to figure out where the shots are coming from, and it's nighttime. I understand there's a lot of factors here, but I do want to look at that. Um, not right now in depth, but we'll look at this later. There's a very interesting piece in, uh, I must say, in the New York Times. I believe it was written by, I know it's two veterans. I think they're both former Marines discussing the uh, the ballistics aspect of what Paddock did and how it was, once again, meant to maximize casualties and that uh, firing, uh, the, the weapons choice, the uh, elevated position, all of this, meant that he didn't have to be in any way a marksman or, or proficient with these rifles. He just set up a killing field um, and with, with devastating consequences. So we will analyze more of the tactics in the, in the days ahead and, and try to get a sense as to what, if anything, could be done differently in the future. Um, and the answer, may be not, the answer may be, Buck, you know, it's uh, the SWAT team got there as quickly as they could, and there was no, you know, it was all exactly as it was as could be reasonably expected, right? I mean, sometimes the good guys get lucky, and but in this case, you know, they, they get lucky and figure out more quickly what, what's going on, but um, we'll, we'll return to that. Uh, and also, there, there, we can't just look at, okay, we don't know motive yet. That's still uh, up in the air, and we'll be trying to figure out more. We don't know about this person of interest situation with his companion, with Pavlik's companion, uh, and everything was meticulously planned out. Um, there were... And I, I, I do think it's important to keep this in mind as we go through all this. There were also a, there were a, a lot of heroes. Um, there are heroes, everyone from those throwing their bodies in front of others to shield them from the gunfire, law enforcement. Uh, I, the shooter engaged security guards in the hallway. And you know, I mean, they're or, or, you know, shooting at them in the hallway. I mean, there's there were a lot of people that put themselves in line, did a lot of uh, really laudatory things under uh, given what, everything that was happening there and i'll remind us of one of those uh, of some of those stories in just a few minutes here but first also uh, we'll talk about the gun control narrative i knew it would happen you knew it would happen it's already started here we'll get into that in the uh, latter part of this hour what happened in las vegas is in many ways a miracle the police department has done such an incredible job and we'll be talking about gun laws as time goes by. But I, but I do have to say how quickly the police department was able to get in was really very much of a miracle. They've done an amazing job. Go ahead. So there you have the president uh, praising, uh, and rightfully so, law enforcement overall for the response 
in Las Vegas, and there have been a lot of stories of heroism, and it's it's the the, the solace that uh, we all really need right now um, is to look at the stories of those uh, great uh, Americans who did whatever they could. And I, look, people are lining up. You know, not everyone that's doing. You know, not, not everyone's in a position to save lives in the moment, and you know, but they're trying to do their part now. I've uh, the lines of. Uh, uh, folks who are trying to give blood because there's a real urgent need, and and if you're in the if you're listening to the show you're in the Las Vegas area, and I'm sure you already know this, but there's an urgent need for blood, especially certain types of blood, to help those who were wounded in this uh, this terrible shooting. Uh, but there there are a lot of people who are showing us, reminding us uh, about the the good uh, in all of us, and also the the particularly. American spirit of courage in the face of uh, of danger and in the face of, of, of adversity and, and of terror. Uh, and one of the best stories that I saw in this regard is, no surprise, uh, a former Marine named uh, Taylor Winston. He's a Marine veteran. And right in the, in the midst of all of this shooting, he went over and he uh, so keep in mind, I mean, this you've got so many people wounded. The the shock of this must have been for hundreds, thousands of people who were there. It must have just been overwhelming. But uh, Marine Taylor Winston decided that he was going to just take action and, and save lives. So he went to some nearby pickup trucks and just figured, well, maybe the keys, maybe the keys are in one of these. And sure enough, he found a, a, uh, a pickup truck uh, and was able to load people. Uh, oh, this, is before any, this is before a single ambulance had arrived on scene. And when you're talking about trauma wounds from rifle fire, seconds count. Speed is everything. And he didn't wait. Winston, uh, Taylor Winston... Got a car. Yeah, he he borrowed it. I mean, tech, you know, he, he had to take someone else's car. I'm sure the owner was more than happy to lend it to him after the fact. He took this car and he filled it with the wounded and got them to the hospital. And then he and some of his buddies went back and uh, and filled it again with people that were bleeding out. And, and he got them to uh, emergency room. And I'm sure he saved lives. And there are other stories like this as well. But this one really... Uh, this one really hit home. Uh, he's a 29-year-old veteran. I think he did two tours, two tours in Afghanistan. And so, as a reminder, as we talk about this this uh, terrible incident and everything that is continuing on with the investigation, and now uh, uh, we we still have we still have each other, and the American people are good, and you know, no matter what comes our way with these kinds of incidents, the good news is we still have United States Marines. So. Uh, this was a great, great story, and um, I think uh, we need some of those stories right now. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. When someone with a, a beard attacks us, we tap phones, we invoke travel bans, we build walls, we take every possible precaution to make sure it doesn't happen again. But when an American buys a gun and kills other Americans, then there's nothing we can do about that. And uh, 
Second Amendment, I guess. Uh, our forefathers wanted us to have AK-47s. Orlando, Newtown, Aurora, San Bernardino, every one of these shootings, the murder used automatic or semi-automatic rifles, which are not weapons you use for self-defense. I don't know why our so-called leaders continue to allow this to happen. They should be praying. They should be praying for God to forgive them for letting the gun lobby, lobby run this country. What I'm talking about tonight isn't about gun control. It's about common sense. That's what we, that's what we really need. We, we need late-night comedians who don't know the difference between automatic or semi-automatic or an AK-47 or what gun laws already exist in the books or what the Second Amendment is all about. We need our late-night comedians in the aftermath of a tragedy to lecture us on policy and to make emotional arguments that are bereft of intellectual heft. That's, that's, what, that's what's going to solve the problem. Maybe, ju- just maybe, you would think that late-night comedians could decide that this is a time for them to actually try to bring us all together and not make this a political argument. No, right away, it's, it's politicians. Oh, is he speaking about Democrats who are all about gun control? No, I don't think so. He wants to separate us right away. He wants to find a means to make this about how uh, the conservatives, the Republicans, are the bad guys. He's a comedian. He could make us all feel better. In fact, I think that that should be his approach and his obligation. You know, he would just want all, you know, who, are the, who the heck are you? I'm a, I make $30 million a year being not very funny on late night TV. Well, the guy's just lucky more than anything else. R- really, I've never thought he was a particularly talented comedian at all. And I'm willing to give credit even to people. You know, John Stewart was very good at doing fake news with a comedy with a comedy facade uh, on The Daily Show. It was very effective uh, and was good at what he was doing. I just think, you know, Jimmy Kimmel thinks that he's a politician now or, or thinks that he's a political pundit. You know, we, we had him making the emotional appeal on health care. Now we have him making the emotional appeal on, on gun control. You know, why not bring us together instead of being even more divisive? But there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. One of them is that we now... The mask has dropped with celebrities, with uh, with actors, with athletes about their politics, because uh, sure enough, we can see what they say on social media. We can see what they they think now. There's no um, way for them to erase once it's been tweeted out that they hate. But we already knew. In fact, there were other late night hosts as well who are all what what is the playbook gun control? So just to keep track of the arguments, mass shooting, mass shooting, mass shooting, mass shooting, mass shooting, mass shooting. We have to take care of this hotel check-in issue. (laughs) And the bar is so low right now that Congress can be heroes by doing literally anything. Universal background checks or come up with a better answer. Enforce Obama's executive order that denied mentally ill gun purchases. Anything but nothing. Doing nothing is cowardice. Now, I come from from a place where we don't have shootings at this frequency, so it's hard for me to fathom. But it should be hard for everyone to fathom. When you say, which you always say, now is not the time to talk about it, what you really mean is there is never a time to talk about it. And it would be so much more honest if you would just admit that your plan is to never talk about it. We talk about guns 
all the time in this country because the left hates guns. Because, as I was saying to you yesterday, you have two big political impulses here on display for all of us to see. Opposition to the Second Amendment, opposition to the right to bear arms, opposition to guns is really now culturally on the left about opposition to gun owners. Gun owners are Republicans. Gun owners are right wing. Gun owners drink Budweiser. They drive pickup trucks. They uh, like NASCAR and they used to like the NFL. I mean, that's you, you oppose guns, not because it's going to do anything or change anything or make it. It's because you're letting everyone know, I don't like those people, the gun owners. That's why all these Hollywood elite types and all the rest of them are always making a point of letting everybody know how much they hate guns, no matter how ignorant on the subject they are. You had Stephen Colbert there saying, you know, why not have universal background checks? Stephen Paddock would have passed any background check. No criminal record whatsoever. You, you could do whatever you want. I mean, so what's the standard then going to be? You, you have to sit somebody down for interrogations with a, a polygraph machine attached to them? Well, th- that doesn't feel like it's a right, does it? You know, it, already they have so many impediments in place for the Second Amendment that they would never even dream of allowing for, say, the voting rights. Right? When it comes to voting rights, you can't do anything to protect them. When it comes to the right to bear arms, you can regulate them out of existence if you're a Democrat legislature at the state or even the federal level. They tried to. Um, you have Colbert saying, you know, background checks. Well, that wouldn't have done anything. Uh, Obama's executive order about mental health. Oh, so how do we enforce that one? Already you can't have a, a weapon if you've ever been involuntarily committed. But that's a very, very small subset of the population. What counts as a a mental health exclusion then from being able to enjoy the right to bear arms? Uh, If you have PTSD now, are you are you banned from owning a firearm? If you seek therapy, as so many have who have fought and bled for this country, they come back and now they're told, sorry, you you can't because, you know, you saw a a psychologist to help you uh, reacclimate into the country you were fighting for. You don't get to own a firearm. I mean. What what little left wing punk legislator is going to make that case to the American people? I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe some will, but they they wouldn't. though. What they would do is they would say they would leave it kind of a, as a gray area of, well, you know, mental health and it'll be on a case by case basis. And then they would just try to exclude as many people as possible. Uh, but, you know, Colbert, so what Colbert's saying is let's do these things that wouldn't have stopped this shooting. Why won't you do those things? To which I also want to respond, why don't you know anything about the subject matter if you're going to uh, browbeat people, if you're, if you're going to be lecturing America, if you are so lucky, as all of these people are. I work in media, I see talent, I see hard work, I also see a lot of luck and a lot of knowing the right people or being related to the right people. And, you know, and those are the people I find who are the least grateful for the, the, the ones who had to fight every step of the way. To, to get that show, to get that, uh, that position on TV or radio or wherever it is. They appreciate it, and they have, a, they have a humility that is absent from those who just kind of you know, get handed it all, or at least an appreciation, if not a humility. Uh, and there's, there's no sense of appreciation that I, you see from uh, these different late-night hosts who want to lecture us. I mean, you've got, you've got people who are not even American who are lecturing us here on the Second Amendment. 
I mean, you've got, I, I don't maybe they've become permanent residents, so, you know, please, I, I don't know. But you've got that British guy who's like, you know, I've got, I haven't got these problems in my own country. You know, I'm, I'm from the UK. I won't lecture Americans on all this. It's like, well, first of all, the UK has a whole lot of nonviolent gun crime that they don't even want to talk about. Uh, and uh, we're a different country from the UK, in part because we had guns in this country. So uh, the the history of this is like when Piers Morgan was here. He's like, I'm Piers Morgan. I'm going to lecture Americans. I'm going to take a show on CNN. I mean, the fact they gave that guy a show and then he made his signature issue guns. And he's like, you know, I've never like I've never like like never, never fired a gun before. Um he had knew nothing about any of this, but thought he should lecture the American people on it because it's virtue signaling, because it's what I was saying before. Uh, which maybe then brings me to the other part of this, which uh, I said there are two big political impulses at work. Uh, you have the desire to show that you're not one of those, uh, you know, trucker hat wearing, NASCAR watching, Budweiser drinking, American flag waving Americans. Uh, you're not one of those people because you dislike guns. You know, you are you know, you live in in Bushwick, which is part of Brooklyn here in New York. And and you, you know, make your own pickles and, and dr- drive a bicycle to work. And, are, you know, I mean, all, all that stuff. Right. That, if you dislike uh, guns, you're or if you're one of those people and you want to show your dislike for guns, you are really signaling that you are part of the in group. You're part of the cool group, the ethical, moral, smart people. Same thing with climate change, by the way. An issue where we're told all the time you need a scientific background to have an opinion, unless your opinion is that climate change uh, is a threat to all of mankind. And then uh, mankind, microaggression, Buck, settle it down, man. He's just like enforcing the patriarchy. Uh, No, there there's no scientific background or knowledge needed if you go along with the consensus opinion. But if you are somebody who. Uh, who questions or at least wants a little bit more proof, then all of a sudden you need to have a Ph.D. in the field. And even if you did have a Ph.D. in the field, they would say that you were bought by the oil companies. They don't care. It's about social signaling. Other part of this is government. Just the government has to do something because the government fixes things. Um, there, There is not always, in fact, a way for the government to just make the problem go away. Uh, d- Democrats, at the the core of what... Uh, the American left believes is that there is nothing really outside the province of the state, the big S state, meaning the in this case, the federal government. They can involve themselves in anything and it is their right to try and fix anything. This is a fundamental philosophical political difference between left and right in this country. It's really other than perhaps some moral and ethical areas and a belief in a in traditional religion and a, a a more orthodox not orthodox as in christian but orthodox as in the way it's supposed to be interpretation of the relationship between uh, man and god uh, traditionally that's a separate a, a way that you can separate out a lot of the left and right in this country although not entirely i know there's crossover um, but on the issue of the role of the state and government that is one of the most important and most profound separations that exist. And here we have a tragedy. People are, and it's, uh, it's, it's mass murder. When you say tragedy, I also, it's not a tragedy like what's happened with the hurricanes, which is a natural disaster, which is just something that happens. What happened in Las Vegas never should have happened. And it is not bad luck. It is evil, right? These are, these are distinctions that we must keep in mind. Uh, but 
just because something is evil and just because someone chose evil does not mean that laws are going to fix the problem. There is no legal fix to what this individual did because he did not care about the law. He did not care about living. He killed himself, which, I, I, given all the other meticulous planning, you'd have to think that that was his plan all along. But we are not allowed to have a, an adult conversation with the left on this issue because for them it's all about you're, you're not a good person. If you support the Second Amendment, you're not a good person. Supporting the uh, tens of millions of legal gun owners and their rights in this country is irrelevant to the left because any support of gun rights is somehow tantamount to not caring enough about what happened in Las Vegas. That's what that's what the real core of the issue is. By the way, in, in case this wasn't enough, yeah, even had Brian Williams rush in on this. Well, you know, the, you know, the, there there I was on the beaches of Normandy talking about gun control. I mean, you know, Brian Williams, the 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 fabulist uh, and uh, fantasist himself. Um, here's what he had to say about gun control. Why don't we act? What uh, What is the problem? What was it about first graders losing their lives that wasn't sad enough to result in changes? Nobody said it wasn't sad enough, Brian. It's what was the change supposed to be? But, you know, he's he's not quite as welcome as he used to be at the fancy parties on Nantucket and the Vineyard and the Hamptons. Uh, but he still wants people that are there when he does get invited now. You know, he's kind of a, a, a C-team player in that world of, of hyper-elite journalism. Uh, he wants them to think, though, well of him as much as they can and to make this this argument that really just turns into emotional blackmail, right? Agree with me or, or you're mean and hateful and a bad person and don't care about dead children. Uh, this is what Brian Williams will do. Well, it's not even enough to use the most recent tragedy as emotional blackmail. They'll, they'll reach back to Sandy Hook and say, well, you know, and that was Democrats, I should note, weren't willing to do what Obama wanted them to do on that. Uh, you know, there were some Democrat holdouts. All right, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this and, uh, and also in the second hour. I promised you we would get into a uh, discussion about um, a discussion about separatism and separatism at home and abroad. I, I, it's going to be a bit uh, philosophical, but I think it's it's interesting. There's a lot going on right now. Kurdistan, Catalonia, all kinds of places that want to create their own little countries. What happens there and what happens if people want to do that here? I really believe that if, if there are certain politicians that um the wake-up call didn't come when 26 year olds were were murdered i i just i can't imagine that this shooting of perhaps fellow republicans um music country music democrats, lovers so democrats america oh the view there you go uh she references fellow republicans there i, I this is uh this is appalling but this is what you get. Uh, people who want to show their side, meaning the left, the Democrats, the progressives, however you want to define it, uh, that they care and the big, bad, mean Republicans don't. I, we, we should be unsurprised, I, I suppose, that the view um, has absolutely n- nothing of substance to add to the conversation on gun control or really on anything for that matter ever. I think that's fair. 
I think that the view is not where you should go for substance. If it's how to make the uh, best summer frise salad or what Kim Kardashian is wearing or or whichever. Who's the more famous Kardashian now? The younger one. Kylie. Thank you, Dramos. Uh, Kylie Kardashian. Um, Amy, who is who is the, the best Kardashian? So I know. So I sound like I know what's going on. Do we No, you don't. Nothing. She's not even <laughs> she's waving me off. She can't even tell me. Point here being the view is for that kind of stuff. The view is not for serious conversations, in my opinion. But if they're going to have serious conversations, if they're going to stray from talking about the Kardashians and the I don't you know, whatever. I keep going to the that's my go to you know, whatever reality TV show now breakup is happening or something. At least do a little research. You know, here you have Sonny Hostin, who I know is a legal analyst, a lawyer. I think she worked as a prosecutor. I'm not saying that she isn't capable of doing the research and learning about the subject matter and having something to add, but just saying that Republicans are meanies who don't care about dead children is not an argument. It's not okay, and they really need to stop doing this. They really, really need to um, not pretend that this is about the good people, uh, those who want to ban guns, which is largely what the conversation is now, banning guns. Versus the bad people, those who are like, well, there are 300 million guns in existence. It's a constitutionally protected right. And uh, 99.99999% of legal gun owners never break any laws of any consequence, never mind actually breaking a firearms law. So, but that's the adult conversation. They they don't want to have the adult conversation. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, welcome back, team. I know that uh, a discussion about a referendum in a uh, part of Spain may not necessarily uh, get all that much attention in, in our media because what does this have to do with any of us? Well, it could, this uh, Catalonian independence referendum that just happened, Catalonia being a region of Spain, it could result in a domino effect of other uh, state within a state actors in the EU deciding that they want to separate the the Flemish who are currently in uh, Belgium, for example, may want to break off on their own. People forget that even within a lot of the uh, countries of the EU, there are different linguistic and cultural separations that are really nations within a broader nation, within a larger nation state. And they're held together or have been held together for a while now. But there have always been these cracks, these seams, these uh, places where separation was real and lingered on. Um, And what we see with Catalonia is that finally now there may be action here. There may be a Real movement to separate. And here's why it matters for us. Before I, before I tell you about the specifics of the Catalonia uh, referendum um, and uh, what's the Catalan people deciding that they want to go their own way, uh, they can go their own way. You know what I mean? Uh, that was actually more off key than I honestly would be if I got another shot at that. But think about it in this context. The State of California in the U.S. often has moments in time, at least, where there's a a surge in 
separatist sentiment. People think of removing themselves from these United States uh, through a a referendum process by by voting to secede. Now, California doesn't do it, and I think that they're not going to anytime soon, but we should at least be familiar with the debate, the the question, and, and the answers, such as they are, about, well, why can't a state within a state or within a nation state secede? Right? Why we have an interesting history in this country. Let, let's start from the U.S. perspective, and then we'll take a look at uh, Catalonia. Right. So we'll we'll do this in perhaps reverse order. Usually, I would tell you what's going on there, and then talk a bit about how it relates to what's happening here, to your life here in the United States, and uh, make this meaningful beyond just knowing stuff, which one of my favorite parts of this show is the learning of different stuff and and getting to share it with all of you uh, and try to add whatever insight or background or knowledge I I may or may not have in any particular topic. Uh, But in the context of our own history and this country, we chose to secede from our nation state. I mean, in the U.S. mind, it's, well, of course we did, right? Well, at the time, it was radical. At the time of the 13 colonies, the decision to separate from what was the most powerful nation state in the world, uh, England, was radical and revolutionary, hence the American Revolution. So uh, go back and read the words of the Declaration of Independence, and you see that we have our, our founding is premised upon the right to determine for ourselves our future and for our posterity, but also that there comes a time when enough is enough, and the nation state, the overlord, the monarchy, whatever it may be, in our case, in the revolution, it was uh, England and King George, but whomever it may be, has been too disconnected or too oppressive or unfair or abusive, and you're done. Now, that's the origins of our own nation state. And then you look at the Civil War and the history of preventing secession that we also have, where we said, nope, not only are we not okay with this, um, or not only was the Union not okay with this, clearly the Confederacy was, Uh, But we will fight. We will use force to maintain the union. Now, now these are huge and weighty questions when posed as uh, whether we're talking about the revolution or the Civil War and what those parameters were. And you could write and whole books have been written on the issues of our right to uh, our our right to separate from uh, Great Britain or the United Kingdom and also our right or Lincoln's decision and uh, and the Civil War that followed, um, all, all of that is weighty and, and subject matter that, that certainly is, is worth uh, lots of time, as it has been given lots of time. But it, in a more simple way, we should keep in mind, what are the parameters of acceptable versus unacceptable separatism, separatist movements? There are, in fact, movements around the world in many different countries, uh, some have been successful. I mean, there have been countries that have been formed in recent years. Kosovo, for example, South Sudan. Now, you can run down a list. There have been quite a few of them. I'll probably be talking to you in just a bit here about the latest on Kurdistan, which is the Kurdish area of northern Iraq and the prospects for it being a 
state unto itself. Um, but focusing in for a moment just on, on the broader concept, it's fine to say that everyone of a certain age in a certain place gets to vote, but drawing those boundaries around the place makes a huge difference, right? Because it's not just that each individual gets to vote. It's, well, what group of individuals? What constitutes, uh, for the purposes of democracy, what's a quorum? What's acceptable? What's enough to make a determination for the future of a region? If you have a city that wants to in the, I guess, the ancient Greek model, for example, the city-state, right? The city-state unto itself. Now, people think of Athens, oh, a great city in ancient Greece, the golden age of Greece. They often don't know, um, and if one reads the... uh, uh, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, you certainly get a sense of this because well, why is Athens fighting in Syracuse? And why are all these other islands in the, in the Aegean and the Mediterranean, why are they a part of the war between Athens and Sparta, known as the Peloponnesian War? Well, it's because Athens had tributaries, which were really colonies of the city-state of Athens. And Sparta did as well, but Athens actually had a vast, because of its maritime power, a vast uh, empire that it didn't refer to in those terms, but it really was. But a city-state as its own, and, and the, the Vatican, for example, Vatican City is, a, is its own country, but not really, but it is. It technically is, but we all know it's not really a, not really a country. You know, the Swiss guards are not about to be like, oh, yes, we're taking over your country next door. You know, all few hundred of them or whatever it may be. Uh, the... City state, the city that decides that it wants to separate from a larger country, is that acceptable? Why or why not? You have Quebec in uh, in Canada as and, and the Quebecois and French Canadians have been thinking about separating from Canada for a long time. They haven't done it, but they're culturally and linguistically distinct, not entirely separate from, but distinct from some of the Canadians. Uh, and I'm sure listening somewhere right now, there's a guy named Pierre. It's like, that's right, monsieur. We are very dif- different. We like the cold weather, but also the, what is the, uh, put- or poutine. Poutine, um, which is the dish of uh, French fries that is uh, eaten with gravy on it, I think, in France. So, yes, there are also culinary differences. But how do you make these determinations? Because if you want to separate, I mean, this is where you really get into this discussion. And whether we're talking about Catalonia or California, how do you make these distinctions about what's an acceptable threshold for voting to secede? What's an acceptable threshold for uh, removing oneself from the, uh, the greater nation-state system that one's in. Because the nation-state, you're talking about tax dollars. I mean, in the case of Catalonia in Spain, which is this region that's right between, think of the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal, and Catalonia is tucked up in the northeastern corner. It's uh, analogous to the kingdom of uh, Aragon, if you're somebody who cares about uh, the history of medieval Europe. Uh, But Catalonia, they they have their own police force. They have their own administration of government at some level. They're still a part of Spain, but they represent 20 percent of Spanish GDP, which also means they're a big chunk of the revenue for a country that has spent itself way into debt 
and is not about to happily separate itself from any of its territories, especially because the domino effect is very real. If Catalonia in Spain, which just had this referendum, uh, if it breaks away, well, what about the Basque region? In fact, there has been a Basque separatist group, the ETA, that has used violence. It's, it's a terrorist organization that has wanted to separate from Spain. So it, you might have uh, Catalonia with uh, Barcelona, or if you want to be, I, I don't speak Spanish at all, so for me this is, I'm totally, uh, totally a pretender here, but people I know say Barcelona, uh, and that's one of the distinguishing characteristics. If you're, if you're one of the, the, the cool folks who's visited Spain and, and knows your lingo and knows the different pronunciations, it's not Barcelona, it's Barcelona. Uh, but if you look at uh, the Basque region, you have uh, Bilbao, Spain, and that's another place. That's the main city. And that's another place that may want to break off. And, you know, if the Spanish say yes to Catalonia, they may have to say yes to uh, to the Basque region. And there could be more. Right. If the Catalans get their way, maybe the Basques will get their way, too. And now you have the in, the integrity and the this is the real core of it all. The legitimacy of a state comes into question when you have statelets carved out from within it. So the very legitimacy of Spain might come into question. And this is now why we see a moment of of freak out. I mean, you have the Spanish king, which I don't think that's a particularly uh, useful, uh, a particularly useful voice to weigh in right now. Um, But he has accused them publicly as of today of unacceptable disloyalty. In this whole process, I, I don't think that the king's voice is the one that when you're talking about separatist movements and and seceding, um, I'm not sure you want the monarch of that state that that in the 21st century in 2017, I think that sends a strange message. It might even be a bit counterproductive. Um, but now here we are with the prospect of a Spanish state that if it doesn't find a way to cobble this all back together, could be in a process of dissolving. And from what the police did at some of these polling stations in Catalonia uh, over the weekend, where police, because the local Catalan police were unwilling to shut down these polling stations, Spanish law, the Spanish federal government, the national government, uh, said that this this was an illegal referendum and that people weren't allowed to vote. Well, once you start telling people who have the franchise, who are able to vote in other ways, that they're not allowed to vote on this one, I think that makes them want to push the case even more, and it certainly did. Ninety percent of those who voted in this referendum want to separate from, formally separate from Spain and set up their own country. Uh, This also has implications for Kurdistan, for the Kurdish region of northern Iraq, which I'll talk to you about in just a moment. And I, I wanted to note that what is the reason that we give? What would happen in this country if California did decide, which they won't because they are feeding at the federal trough, my friends, make no mistake about it. But what would happen if California said, you know what, we, we want to just do our own thing. We don't want to be part of the United States. We just want to be the state, the nation state of California. Now, that would mean that Republicans win every election for the foreseeable future at the national level without those votes in the Electoral College. Uh, that's a little side effect of all this. But what is the argument that we make? How do we tell a a group that they are not allowed to vote to form their own state? Just because? 
it's more complicated than many of us want to believe at first. Uh, you know, whoever determines the parameters of who can vote is already making a massive determination about the future of those people. And if you're saying that you're not allowed to have self-determination because this area is too small or this area is too important to the larger whole, whether it's California, Rhode Island, who knows? I mean, this is a discussion I think that will be coming, by the way, with uh, Puerto Rico. You know, does it does it want to become a state? If not, why and what happens? And now they're not going to vote to secede because I think they like being a part of U.S. territory. They like being U.S. citizens. But these are all questions that we should be willing to wrestle with because the answers are not obvious and not apparent all the time. And the moment we take it from what is overseas and make it more real for us by saying, OK, what about a U.S. state? What would happen if and look at how culturally divided we are? It's not that insane. It's not that beyond the pale to think that a U.S. state could at some point in the future decide that it would uh, want to separate from the United States. And if they were willing to cut themselves off from all federal money and all. Now, people would say, Buck, the federal infrastructure that's there, do they get to keep it? And there's all these complexities. But nation states, the borders, the boundaries, the political realities of them are changing all the time. And all this disruption and and shifting of borders and boundaries that we see overseas, Catalonia, most recently in Spain, Kurdistan and Northern Iraq, which I want to return to as a subject. Uh, but these different debates aren't just for them. They, they are for us. It's just a question of when. And as the political separations and the cultural separations in this country become even more stark, I think we should be very clear on what we think is acceptable and what is unacceptable when it comes to separatism and secession. Uh, this is, you know, it's interesting talking about uh, Catalonia and uh, secession and the different states that may form or separatism, secession, you know, these are words. Uh, when you think of all of the uh, insurgent groups around the world that uh, for one reason or another, I mean, in a lot of cases, uh, because of the the history of the 19th century, we think of separatist groups as being uh, Marxist revolutionaries, groups like the FARC, right, in Colombia, which because of their, well, one of their, their role in waging war against the Colombian state, but also the notion of a class warfare uprising as being the justification for uh, removal from or or exiting from a nation state. We, we take a dim view of that, right? Um, and whether it's the uh, jihadist separatists in southern Philippines, the Moral Islamic Liberation Front, they want to be liberated from the Philippines. There are even separatists, uh, there are Muslim separatists in southern Thailand and uh, you know, you look uh, the Uyghurs in Western China, uh, they want to have their own state and there are many different places. So on the one hand, being consistent, having moral consistency on the issue of separatism is is difficult. And also you have to factor in, well, if we OK it, if we support it for one uh, entity in a, you know, for one group of people inside of a state. How do we say no to the others? You know, the international community likes stable boundaries until we don't. Right. We want a country to be whole until it's Yugoslavia and it has to be uh, torn asunder. We see what happens in Ukraine. Well, that referendum is not OK in Crimea, we say. But where is it OK and where is it not? 
These are important questions, and I want to uh, focus on Kurdistan and the role of separatism there. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. It's continuing with our theme about talking here um, about everything going on in the world of of separating or se- separating from states of, of separatism. And as I was saying to you, w- this has implications in the case of Europe for the EU, which is the largest. I know Americans, we don't like to hear this, but the EU, which is a whole lot of countries put together, is the largest economy in the world. Um, and the changes that could happen there especially in a place where when you're thinking about Europe, there's the possibility, there's always something of a possibility of uh, violence, right? That's all, that is something that you have to be uh, aware of when you're talking about Europe and its history, right? Europe, we think of now as so peaceful and, oh, it's all, you know, croissant and uh, lattes and cobblestone streets and it's all so charming and they have castles. Not long ago, a lot of different countries in Europe were, well, setting the world on fire, and we're at each other's throats. So once these fissures, these separations, these uh, fractures of the different European nations within nations come to the fore, uh, people have concerns. Oh, and by the way, huge opportunity here as well for Vladimir Putin. Yes, it's very it's like, uh, like to take the separatist movement, especially if you speak Russian. And we come in and we tell you that, uh, you know, you have the vote and you uh, can form your own country. Uh, that's one of the ways that's out of the playbook. If, if Putin wants to undermine NATO, as so many have been saying, is his goal. And, and, and I do believe that's his goal. Why wouldn't it? Think of it this way. If you're Vladimir Putin, wouldn't you be trying to undermine NATO? W- wouldn't that be, you know, it's, it's a military alliance that, yes, we've used for other things. A lot of Americans I think often forget or don't know that our mission in Afghanistan is under the aegis of is under the auspices of NATO, which was formed to oppose the Warsaw Pact and and the Soviet Union. So uh, Russia still thinks about these uh, about the issue of NATO very differently than than we do. And if Putin is looking for openings uh, to try and pull Europe apart which given Brexit, I haven't even mentioned Brexit. I know that's another, but that's not really separatism within a nation. That's separatism from a super nation in a, in a sense, right? The, the EU, which is a collection of different nations. Uh, but Putin's openings here are, I think, quite clear, especially when you move into uh, some parts of Eastern Europe, you move into the Baltics, uh, which are Yes, they're under NATO, but there are Russian-speaking minorities in countries like Latvia and Lithuania. And all Putin has to do, all the Kremlin has to manage, is to come up with some pretext for uh, working or jumping in, uh, jumping in and and saying they're protecting the Russian-speaking minority in a country that was formerly Soviet. And now we've got a now we've got a big problem because we think that the response that we would have or that NATO would have would always be overwhelming and immediate. And so Putin would never dare. Well, if the political calculation changes, the military response from NATO would change, too. But this, these are just the different ways that this plays out in a manner that affects us on the on the global stage uh, and, and how Europe, which is 
uh, full of many of our closest allies, is affected by this notion of people who want to break away. And as I said, in America, we have sympathy for it because of the revolution, but we also have caution because of the Civil War. And ultimately, in some cases, all that keeps a state together is force. If enough people in a place that has an especially if it has a geographic identity and and is uh, definable, if enough people want to do their own thing, why can't they? Because there's a law from people that aren't living there that says that they can't. I mean, you know, you you see how this is uh, this is one of the more interesting in the post Treaty of Westphalia era, the Treaty of Westphalia from 1648. Uh, we've thought of nation states as being these stable entities, even though they're in constant flux, right? We think of a nation state, oh, that's the country of. Well, it's largely a a perception. Most countries are not defined by geography. They're, they're, devi- they're defined by the extent of their ability to project force, right? I'll stop projecting the force of my state here. You stop projecting the force of your state there. Eh, we've got a boundary. And nowhere is that more apparent um, or at least you could argue. I know people are going to say, well, what about in Africa? Uh, but nowhere is this notion of boundaries that are just created uh, more apparent, other places perhaps equally so, than in the Middle East, where you have a number of countries that have been formed by external powers that cobble together all these different nations and entities into one. This is why you have, uh, among the, uh, the punditocracy, discussions of Iraq as the Middle East's Yugoslavia, right? Yugoslavia, now we're familiar with these different groups, Serbs and Croats and all all these, you know, Albanians and all these different uh, groups that are, you you have Slavs and you have Albanians, you have Croats, they're all together in this one state. What do they really have in common? Well, Tito, the strongman of Yugoslavia, communist strongman, was holding it together. And once he went and the regime fell, there was nothing really holding it together, and we had a war. We had violence. In fact, we had two bouts of violence in uh, in Yugoslavia as they figure as that nation state devolved into something else. And now in Iraq, referred to as the Middle East Yugoslavia, you got these three main groups: the uh, Sunni Arabs, the Shia Arabs, and the Kurdish. There are also Muslims, but Kurds, have a, they speak a different language, although they also speak Arabic generally in, in, in Iraq. Uh, but they, have, they speak Kurdish, and they are ethnically distinct and, and culturally distinct. And they have been operating as a statelet. Uh, they've been operating as, a, as an entity within the broader Iraqi entity with autonomy for quite some time. And we have de facto recognized that autonomy, that Kurdish autonomy in different periods because, for example, during the, the era of the no-fly zone in Iraq, we, if, if you looked at the, at the corridors where we were enforcing that no-fly zone, it really corresponded to the Kurdish north of the country and the Shia Arab majority south of the country, which one should note has very uh, deep ties of, of kinship and culture to Shia majority but Persian Iran, right? So the Iranians are, although not entirely, it's actually only about 60% or so Farsi-speaking 
ethnic Persians in Iran. There's also Kurds in Iran, which comes into play here. Uh, and there are other groups as well, but they are mostly uh, Shia Muslim Persians, and they have affinity with, because of being Shia, this sect of about 15% overall of global Islam, they have this connectivity to the Shia uh, Arab minority in Iraq. Anyway, though, that's where we had the no-fly zones in the north and the south of that country. And uh, the Kurdish region has been operating with some degree of U.S., if not de facto autonomy, at least we've been like, hey, thanks for keeping it stable. And we have been close allies with the Kurds for a long time. Uh, we have been very close uh, to them on the before even the fight against ISIS. But the fight against the Islamic State has particularly clarified uh, that we can work with the Kurds, that they have kept extremism in their own midst in check, that they operate a state that is functional and that is uh, safe. And they're proving in the Middle East, they have been proving in the Middle East right now, given all the instability in that region and given that it is a an area of the world, as I mentioned before, whether we're talking about Africa or the Middle East, where colonialism, you had different powers, outside powers, drawing up these boundaries. In the case of the Middle East, the most famous instances of that are the Balfour, uh, Balfour Declaration, uh, which led to the creation of the state of Israel and, uh, and separated out Israel and, and Palestinians, uh, and the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which separated the uh, remnants of the Near East that had been in the in Ottoman Empire hands, but they separated it between Sykes, British, and Pico, French. Uh, there, and I should note um, that as we look at these, as we look at these borders, and we look at how they've been changing and been shaped by conflict, the Kurds have been taking a different approach. We will. Stay within Iraq. We will keep our area calm. We will be a trusted partner with the United States in counterterrorism. But we're now telling them, hey, sorry, you got to you got to stay in Iraq. I mean, you've got Rex Tillerson calling the Kurdish referendum illegitimate. And I just have to point out that the the legitimacy of a referendum is a very, very uh, amorphous thing. It's, It's not clear, as I was saying. The Kurds have their own language, they have their, their, their own ethnicity, and they have been distinct in many ways from the Iraqi state for a long time. And what is Iraq really other than a remnant of a previous era? Now, I know this is, this is a dangerous and destabilizing path to go down. You start to say, well, why is this place even a country? There are a lot of places where you won't have a great answer. You know, if someone were to say, you know, why, why is, is France even a country? You'd have a vast majority of the French be like, because it's France and we're, we are the French, right? I mean, but there are other places where they would say, eh, you know, you got, a, you got quite a point there. I don't know. And, and Iraq is one of them right now. I am uh, disconcerted. I find it uh, depressing, quite honestly, that we are in this position where we are putting stability over what what I think is a debt of honor to the Kurdish people in in Iraq. I there's a there's differences of opinion on what will happen uh, in Turkey because of this, and the PKK has been a terrorist insurgency, a Marxist I should note, separatist terrorist insurgency in Turkey uh, for decades, and has engaged in a, you know, atrocities and terrorist bombings. And, but in the context of northern Iraq, 
I, I see a stalwart ally among the Kurds in northern Iraq. They have helped us hold the line against the Islamic State. If the Kurds had let things go to hell in their part of the country during the worst parts of the Iraq war, we would have been lost, my friends. There's no way we could have kept it together and prevented a full, uh, com- uh, a failed state situation with a civil war on top of it in Iraq with regional players, essentially Iraq as Syria. That would have happened, I think, were it not for the Kurds. So right now, right now, and I know it's it's in the background, there's all these other, you know, people want to talk about this or this or that, you know, political issue. And, oh, yeah, sure, we'll get health care done. You know, we'll see. Right. I'm I'm following that closely, too. I always prioritize on this show what matters most to you and me in our day to day lives, because if you are kind enough and, and, and do me the great honor of giving me your time, I want to maximize the benefit of you spending time with me here in the Freedom Hunt. Uh, but on the issue of the Kurds, we've been, we are st- still have U.S. troops in Iraq. We've worked very closely with the Kurds. Uh, I would argue that a lot of U.S. service members' lives have been saved by the Kurds, have been saved as a result of Kurdish counterterrorism operations against Sunni Arab jihadists predominantly against Islamic State entities, and they have been absolutely essential. And instead of just saying that the referendum is illegitimate, sorry, stay in Iraq, I wish the government right now would be willing to, our government now I'm talking about, would be willing to say, all right, we, we, should, we should work something out here. You know, Iraq, we understand the big, big issue is oil uh, and the oil reserves that exist in the Kirkuk region. Kirkuk is a city in uh, north uh, northeast Iraq or northern Iraq, uh, not up in the Kurdish area entirely. It's it's one of these uh, places where there's a a bleed over of different all these different groups. Right there's Kurds, there's Sunni Arabs, there's all these different groups that come together in Kurdish, and that's really one of the seams. And if there was an all out civil war in Iraq, uh, the Kirkuk area, which has been, uh, there's been plenty of violence there already uh, in the past. That would be a place where how do you how do you separate this out cleanly? There is no clean separation. The oil revenue would have to be shared. They'd have to find a way to make a go of it. But I am very concerned that because we've got North Korea on, in our sights and we've we're, we've got a lot going on, and we've just finally it seems gained the uh, not just the upper hand, but but put the Islamic State on the defensive and on the road to eradication uh, in the last 12 months or so, that I know that we don't want to make things more complicated for ourselves. I know that there is a desire to avoid uh, stirring things up. But I, th- I, think we, I think we have an obligation. I think we have. And I, I've seen by some of you, I've got people listening who are Turkish family members and the Kurds and the Turks. Man, it, it's, it's tense for a whole lot of reasons. And I get that. I know there's a Kurdish separatist, well, there's the PKK, as I've been saying to you, and there's this large sentiment that they want a big piece of Turkey, and, you know, what would that mean? I, I get all this. I think we owe the Kurds something in northern Iraq. People are free to disagree with me. That's fine. And I know that this is the riskier option. The safer option is we keep Iraq together. Um, but I think in the long run, that's actually a worse option. So, uh and and right now, if you were to ask me what is the most likely flashpoint for for a new armed conflict in the Middle East, it would be over Kurdistan, whether it involves the Turks or the Iraqi central government or uh, there. There is a lot of tension right now. And uh, 
as we've been discussing, oftentimes the state just says, you know what, it's going to be my way because I can make it my way. It's not that there is an argument that's compelling. It's not that we want to work this through the political process. Might makes right when it comes to separatist tendencies inside of states, and that can have really disastrous consequences. Gerrymandering. Hey, Buck Sexton here with you. Uh, Gerrymandering is going to get looked at by the Supreme Court. This could be a very this sounds like kind of a like kind of a a snore, a snore fest of a case. I think you're like gerrymandering. Right. I mean, how exciting can that be? This has big implications, actually. Here's political reporting. Supreme Court eyes partisan gerrymandering. Kennedy Uh, seen as swing vote that could uh, blunt GOP's map drawing successes. And here's what they say. The Supreme Court wrestled Tuesday with a case that has the potential to halt or even reverse an increasingly common phenomenon of American political life. Republicans' ability to tilt the political playing field in their favor through the tedious task of redrawing district lines. The politically explosive high court fight over so-called partisan gerrymandering has the potential to radically reshape the political scene by thrusting courts across the country into the role of vetting district maps for excessive partisan bias. So let me just note here, you know, we were talking about who gets to decide who gets to vote in the context of the rest of the world, different countries, Iraq and Kurdistan and Catalonia and Spain and here in our midst, my friends, we have a debate that is very similar, which is, Well, what is a district even within our country? Who gets to vote for a congressman? You know, what are the boundaries of of a district that makes a whole heck of a lot of difference in uh, in states and congressional districts across our entire political system? So who draw the lines? Uh, Who draws the lines, whether it's a political debate uh, abroad about referendum or within our own country? That's an incredibly important and powerful question. And ultimately, it often comes down to somebody's got to draw the lines. It's just as good in Puerto Rico, and it's actually a much tougher situation. Uh, But now the roads are cleared. Communication starting to come back. We need their truck drivers. Their drivers have to start driving trucks. We have to do that. So on a local level, they have to give us more help. But I will tell you, the first responders, the military, FEMA, they have done an incredible job in Puerto Rico. And whether it's her or anybody else, they're all starting to say it. I appreciate very much the governor and his comments. He has said we have done an incredible job. And that's the truth. So there you have the president of the United States who is in in Puerto Rico today uh, visiting the uh, the island of that U.S. territory, U.S. citizen, full of U.S. citizens. And, you know, I just think that we should all remember how hard they were trying to push the narrative that Trump didn't care about this, wasn't doing anything. I mean, you had FEMA there. You had thousands of federal government officials there. You had uh, a, a response team in place as quickly as possible. The FEMA Operations Center doing everything they can. It's a disaster area. It's a natural disaster. It's obviously going to be tough and there will be some uh, slowdowns and delays and and it's it's an imperfect system. But they were trying to make this into Trump's Katrina and I don't think they're going to be able to. 
meaning that the, the two biggest areas of criticism against Bush, which led to Pelosi becoming Speaker of the House and the Democrats coming back in the midterms, was the Iraq War. And right behind that, the Bush administration's response to Hurricane Katrina uh, in New Orleans and Louisiana. And they rem- all of the different anti-Trump journalists and media outlets out there remember how what a potent narrative that was against Bush and would really like to replay that whole uh, that whole approach with the Trump administration. But they should be reporting on what's happening, not trying to create a narrative based on, you know, what they would what what they're hoping to use for their own purposes uh, and their their own politicization. Uh, you know, they they've seized on this one moment uh, where Trump was there. And this is classic, right? I, I go to The Huffington Post when I want to know what the what the far left is thinking, saying, reading, writing, doing. And here's how they respond. So Trump is down there. He's meeting with people. He's doing everything that he can realistically as commander in chief. He's in Puerto Rico. He's overseeing the uh, discussions today about what they're trying to do to rebuild. I, I know that it's in. Puerto Rico's infrastructure is way less advanced and developed than what you're talking about with a lot of the mainland U.S. and the hurricane uh, rebuilding and uh, th- that's been going on for a while now. You know, but Trump is there. He's doing what he can under the circumstances. And yet here's how the Huffington Post writes about this. Trump downplays Puerto Rico suffering, says it's, quote, not a real catastrophe like Katrina. Okay, now I, he, I I heard the clip in question here. He was trying to say that it's not as bad as Katrina because there are efforts uh, that have been made right away to try and make sure that they recover from this and that people aren't stranded and without food and water and and medicine. And he's trying to praise the recovery effort, which yes, I know that that serves his purposes. He's commander in chief, head of the federal government. He runs. The executive branch, which which runs FEMA, which is doing which is really running point on trying to bring Puerto Rico back online, literally and figuratively. But to seize on his words like this, it's just petty. They know what he meant. He's saying it's not like Katrina, which which was poorly uh, handled and, and, and was a uh, a a mark on the administration, the Bush administration's record, and and something that was very difficult for them to shake off, and they were held to account for at at the uh, election place or at the polling place rather later during an election. So I just think that you know when when you see all of this and and all the different uh, preparations to capitalize on human suffering, on the suffering of our fellow Americans. For anti-Trump narrative creation purposes, it's just so tiresome. And this is why people don't trust the media. This is why they just they just don't want to they don't want to hear it. Now, never mind the Huffington Post and the New York Times, the same thing. You know, Trump Trump wasn't doing enough for Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico isn't uh, you know is is a Latino Hispanic. Uh, island, you know, Spanish speaking island. That was one of the narratives they put out there. Oh, well, that that doesn't seem like it's true. Well, now it's oh, Trump isn't uh, Trump said that it's not a real catastrophe. He's not a, he's not saying it's not a terrible situation. He's just saying that we're making sure that it doesn't become like Katrina. 
the the unforgivable part of the response to Katrina was what happened after the hurricane, right? It wasn't no one expects FEMA to be in place on the day, you know, making sure that no one's uh, house gets flooded or blown away or, you know, it's, it's what do they do once the storm is passed? And in Katrina was insufficient and a lot of people lost their lives unnecessarily. He was saying that uh, there's been a low death toll in Puerto Rico. That's true. Sixteen people have died in Puerto Rico uh, that were unnecessary deaths caused by the storm. Every death in this case is a tragedy, as he said. But overall, given how terribly uh, powerful that storm was, Hurricane Maria, th- that's a-, a pretty low casualty count for a massive disaster like this. And he's saying we want to keep it, you know, n- not a single uh, not a single life more should be lost. I mean, we're keep it at 16. 16 is too many, but we're not going to let it get to 17. We're not going to let it be like Katrina. That's what he's saying to anyone who's trying to be honest about what the president's intentions with regard to Puerto Rico are and what the president was trying to convey. Uh, but to, to, to play the the hall monitor of Trump's words, which the media loves to do this, you know, it, it's these are people who their whole career, their, their whole livelihood is based upon interpreting and understanding language. But all of a sudden. When Trump says something, oh, well, this is a direct translation of what Trump said, so I'm just going to pretend like Trump's a big, mean racist or a big idiot because this is directly. People have verbal tics. People have different ways of speaking. I sound differently than a lot of uh, the folks that call into the show. I have my own crutch words. I sometimes am infelicitous in my speech. Uh, you know, I, I could sit here and pick apart a lot of and I'm, you're hyper. I'm hyper aware of them because I'm a radio host. Right. But there are things you know, I say, I say, oh, I digress. And I should probably say that less. But it's just a way of resetting in my mind that I've gone off track. I also like to say, of course, um, that's that's a, a crutch phrase for me. There are others. But, you know, Trump has his way of saying things, but the intent of what he is saying and the the purpose of his expression is not indecipherable, but the media just pretends. So when they say, oh, he said it's not a real cat- catastrophe, he said it's not a real catastrophe like Katrina insofar as Katrina had a large casualty count and was handled poorly. And this is not being handled poorly and does not, thank heavens, have a large casualty count. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Buck is back with you uh, now, team. I don't usually get into my reviews of movies here on the show because I know there are other shows that do that. Um, And I I only occasionally will delve into the latest uh, TV shows that I've been watching, which I may do in a few moments here, too, because I know there's a lot of places for that. But sometimes I find that there's something really worth discussing with you, even if it is... Uh, a little dated, even if I'm not uh, current with my pop culture reference. And uh, I rarely get a chance to watch movies. I was flying back from Vegas. That was, you know, I was attending a conference there. And I, that's one of the few times when I'll actually say, you know what, I'll do it. I'll sit here for 90 minutes or 120 minutes and I'll watch a movie. It's a five hour flight, roughly. I'll, I'll watch a movie for two hours. And the rest of the time I'll spend, of course, preparing for this radio show, doing research, connecting to the spotty Wi-Fi at 35,000 feet in the air, whatever it is. 
but I was going through and I figured this is going to be another one of these times when I'm going to watch a movie and I'm going to feel like, well, that's two hours of my life. I'm never getting back. I'm also a strong believer in movies should be 90 minutes. If it's 120 minutes plus, it better be darn good because so many movies I see would be great or would be at least really good if they were 20 or 30 minutes shorter. And they're all, you know, two hours and 15 minutes. They're all 130, 120, uh, around that range. And most movies should be 90 minutes, you know, three acts, bing, bang, boom, one, two, three, donezo. It should not be this extended, uh, endless epic, unless it's Braveheart or a truly phenomenal movie. Put a pin in the Braveheart discussion for another time. We'll do the history, the real history of William Wallace on this show at some point in the future. Ah, see, I've got surprises up my sleeve for you, team. Um, But I'm sitting there, I'm trying to find a movie to watch. And the last time I was on a plane and watched a movie in full, it was the Wolverine movie, which I actually thought was pretty well done for what it was. The most recent, I think it's called Logan, but it's the Wolverine character from the X-Men franchise, which I grew up loving the X-Men. I mean, I still remember my mom, bless her, she was well, greatest mom in the history of the universe, uh, getting me like little Wolverine and Cyclops and uh, Colossus figurines. You know, when I was a kid, people played with G.I. Joes. When I was little, I, I played with these X-Men figurines. I loved the X-Men. I thought that Marvel comics uh, were so cool. And uh, so I'm somebody who tends to be favorably disposed towards, uh, towards comic books made into movies and, and also uh, towards just that, that whole genre. I thought Logan was just... Just too violent. I mean, there's heads getting lopped off left and right. They've got this girl who's like 10 who's got claws and she's ripping out people's carotid arteries and cutting off femorals. And it's just like, whoa, it's like an anatomy lesson. I mean, it was really it was butchery. And and I I get that violence is a part of of drama and storytelling, but I thought I thought Logan was a little excessive on the violence. I I just did, and and I um, appreciated that they tried something new and they um, made some good choices with the cast. And I get all of that, but it was too violent for me anyway, and also too long and dragged in places. But I was looking for a movie to watch, and I I, I watched a few minutes of some clunkers. I there was there was a King Arthur movie. That was available. These are all for free on the plane. A King Arthur movie, which, I mean, this is one of the great tales uh, in, well, all storytelling. I mean, the, the, the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, uh, it, it's just phenomenal source material. And this Guy Ritchie King Arthur update was such trash. Oh, all the CGI and the noise in the beginning. It's like a ripoff of the Lord of the Rings. And I just thought it was a big giant mess i got through 10 or 15 minutes of it and then i was like well i'm gonna go to the next you know, i'm gonna go to the next thing i'm gonna i'm gonna move on past this this is not going to uh not gonna hold my attention and sometimes i'll fast forward through a movie just to watch the action because action movie quote friday i mean i love action movies and i'll just just watch the action sequences those even stunk in the guy Ritchie king arthur uh movie so I was like, this is not going to be good. I got no movies here. Oh, Hacksaw Ridge. I had been meaning to watch Hacksaw Ridge uh, since it came out in theaters. 
I think that uh, We Were Soldiers, which was also directed by Mel Gibson, he of Braveheart starring and uh, directing, and he won Best Picture and Best Director that year for Braveheart. A little side note, Braveheart was a nickname given to Robert the Bruce, never actually referred to William Wallace. So I always thought that was a strange choice for the title of the film. I mean, it's a cool nickname, but it wasn't William Wallace's nickname. It was Robert the Bruce's nickname. And he saves himself at the end. But as you know, he comes off looking pretty, pretty badly until he's like, you have bled with Wallace. Now bleed with me. But Braveheart is probably my all-time favorite movie, certainly in my top five uh, all-time favorite movies. And I, like, I know Mel Gibson has had all kinds of personal problems and demons. I'm just talking about his artwork and his his body of work as a director. And hack, I mean, We Were Soldiers is, for what it was, it was very straightforward. It was a good movie, though. It was a well-executed war film, and I didn't think he really got enough uh, credit for it. And I think it really showed the human cost and the backstory and the families at home. And I really appreciated, uh, I really appreciated that movie. Um, Hacksaw Ridge, which is about this uh, conscientious objector, Desmond Doss. And I, I know this movie came out last, what, a, a year ago or it came out in 2016. We're in 2017 now. Uh, I know that it came out a while ago and that there was a whole Academy Awards moment where they, people thought it would do well. And uh, it did, it did get credit. It is a fantastic movie. This is one of the best. Hacksaw Ridge, which I just saw over the weekend, one of the best movies I have seen in years, uh, I, would, I would say. Uh, and I just recently also, just as a, as a diversion here, I, I saw La La Land as well. Molly wanted to watch it with me. And, you know, it was okay. A lot of self-referential Hollywood stuff, you know, ooh, La La Land, Hollywood, you know, this is the way... This is the way that we, we, we struggle for our art in Hollywood and all this. You know, it was okay. I'm, I'm not about to say that I thought it was uh, a phenomenal film. I, I thought that it was, I give it, a, I give it a B plus, as I said before on the show. But uh, Hacksaw Ridge is an A. Uh, you know, so you've got this conscientious, uh, conscientious objector, Desmond Doss, who becomes a combat medic and receives the is awarded the medal of honor for service above and beyond the call of duty in the battle of okinawa and it's astonishing and the story is gripping and the performances are really good and it was just a nice reminder that that it is possible to tell real human stories of courage love and sacrifice and do it in a way that is relevant and compelling and uh, teaches a bit of history as well in the process. It, it's such a good movie. And that it lost uh, in a lot of... And I know the Academy Awards is all political and it's nonsense, but that it lost in a lot of categories to... Uh, well, it, it lost to Moonlight, which you may recall that whole back and forth where uh, they thought La La Land was Best Picture. They read aloud the wrong award at the Academy Awards for Best Picture, which is the biggest award. And... I haven't seen Moonlight. I really want to watch it because I have a feeling that I'm going to be like, I cannot believe that they thought that, that the Academy thought this was a better movie than Hacksaw Ridge, a more important movie than Hacksaw Ridge. Um, just to put yourself in a position where you can see the uh, reenactment of, I mean, the Battle of 
of uh, Okinawa. You know, I had a grandfather who served on the USS Bataan in the Navy uh, in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was an officer in the Navy, and uh, he occasionally told me stories about what it was like to be on that on that ship, on that uh, on that aircraft carrier, and have kamikaze planes coming in and the, and the gunfire. He, he told me once he didn't he didn't sleep for three days straight because they were in the midst of a uh, an ongoing battle and and hacksaw ridge you've got the battle of okinawa uh you have united states uh, uh troops who are facing this these fanatical uh japanese defenders of of okinawa who were did not obey any of the 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 laws of war any norms of of conduct uh killing torturing prisoners they would surrender as was depicted in the movie and then try to kill those who had taken them in, in good faith in a position of surrender. I, I was watching this movie and I, I have a, an uncle, not by blood, but through marriage, whose who's dad, uh, so not related to me by blood, but I remember meeting when I was a kid, uh, was, a, was a Marine at Guadalcanal. I, I, don't know, I, don't know how, I don't know how they did it. Um, I, I would like to think that in, the, in that time period called upon to fight against the, the greatest evil to have ever threatened mankind. Uh, I would have, I would have answered the call with the same, but you know, I don't know. It's incredible. It's incredible what that generation did in, in the European and the Pacific theater. And uh, it's incredible what our troops do in uniform to this day, you know, facing danger and, and uh, facing death, staring it down for this country and for our freedom. And I think that Hacksaw Ridge, I know it's art, but art can be moving and important and tell us more about the world that we live in. And I I think that it did a really uh, great job of showing so many different aspects of, uh, well, of the the storyline of of Desmond Doss, but also just the Battle of Okinawa. What brutal combat. I cannot imagine uh, what our soldiers were going through there. It's, it's incredible when you see it depicted in a way that um, gets you as close as you can get through uh, a, work of, a work of art, through a, a visual representation of what happened then. But of course, that's a million miles away from what it was to be in the reality. And uh, I know those who wear the uniform today or have worn the uniform, they know it in a way that nobody else ever will in a way that I never will and anyone else who's never worn the uniform can't know but incredible bravery and it, it just an incredible movie Hacksaw Ridge I can't say enough uh, good things about it hey team just some fun uh, updates about things going on in, in my life these days I wanted to share with all of you uh, first off I have experimented recently with the crock pot um, Molly has designated me as her sous chef for all crock pot related activities. I, I like to think of myself as more of a of a busboy slash uh, handyman in that I, I take care of you know making sure that the oven stays on and that the the pots and pans are put away. Uh, but I, I help with some of the cooking. I do like the knife skills portion of being a chef. I, I enjoy that. But we made, and I thank you all, by the way, for sending so many incredible recipes. I'm saving them all in a separate Word file. You've been sending to me on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And the the barbecue knowledge that Team Buck possesses 
is worthy of a cookbook of its own. I mean, really fantastic stuff and all the tips and the, uh, the different time savers and y- your sauce, your barbecue sauce knowledge team is, is incredible. It needs to be written down in, in book form. And maybe that's a project that I'll have to take on in the future, but I have to find a way to give all of you credit for it if I did so. Uh, so we, we made a spicy chicken chili with Japanese sweet potatoes. Now, I know that sounds a little a little bougie, as the kids say. I know that sounds a bit like a yuppie stew, but it was delicious. Uh, it's the kind of meal that you can eat for, for three meals, and I've been doing that. In fact, it's all gone. I finished it off this morning. But the slow cooker is like a revelation. I mean, just... I wish I had gotten one years ago, although I literally did not have the counter space in my Hobbit-sized New York City apartment to, well, be able to cook in any real capacity, but certainly not to bust out the slow cooker. So uh, thank you for sending me all of your recipes and and suggestions on that. And as I have uh, some time to experiment on my own, uh, Miss Molly is going to be out of town coming up here for a little bit, so I will be left to my own devices to I always smoke up the kitchen and and set off the fire alarms I don't know what I'm doing wrong but the fire alarm always goes off and you know then I I'm running around trying to waft the uh waft the smoke away from the alarm and you know I I trip and I stub my toe and it's usually a bit of a disaster so I'm glad nobody else will be around for that one uh, because it's easier to just be embarrassed when I'm messing up in the kitchen on my own uh, but the, but slow cooker has been great, and I've I've got some. Molly doesn't like red meat as much as I do, and I'm gonna experiment with some fatty, juicy, tender red meat recipes. Probably a something braised, and that is a red meat. So I need a a dead animal with marbleization. I need some fat in the meat, and uh, I'm thinking cow. So maybe a brisket. Um, that's that's gonna be the way that I. A pork would be the other one that, which I know is not a red meat technically, but that's the uh, you know pork or brisket, or pork or maybe some kind of um, I'm not sure I'm, I'm I'm thinking. So if you have any great uh, ways to do short ribs, that's what I was trying to think of: short ribs or brisket in a slow cooker. Um, let me know. Uh, uh, and also, thank you for all your kind comments about Percy the Pomeranian, uh, my brother and his girlfriend's dog. Uh, Percy is taking very well to his new environment in New York City, and uh, he is a happy little dude. And I like dogs of all sizes. I know there are people that are only about dogs of a certain size, but, you know, the the little guys, they need love, too. So really now I've I've even expanded. There was a time when I was a uh, a little on the fence about a Maltese or about a Chihuahua. Uh, they weren't really, they weren't really my speed. Uh, I was much more, I'm, I've always been a bulldog person. Bulldogs are the top of the pyramid for me, but Pomeranians have changed my uh, outlook a little bit on toy sized dogs, right? There's that's actually, I think by the American kennel club designation, that's what they are called toy sized. Uh, I used to be, I, I've always been okay with small dogs because I had a Boston Terrier, growing up but toy sized dogs uh, Pomeranians are are great little dudes and uh, you know you can give them kind of a, a hipster cut you know make them look a little more a little more rad a little more tough a little more edgy 
you give them a little mohawk. You know, you can take that big poofy palm uh, fur they have and do all kinds of things with it that, well, usually people put little bows and, and pink sweaters on them. But, I mean, that's not what we're doing with Percy. I mean, Percy's going to have like a little camouflage vest we put on him and, you know, maybe put a little mohawk on his head. You know, we're going to make him a, a, a tough little palm. Uh, or at least my, my, I'm going to tell my brother we should do this. Um, so those are my uh, those are my closing dog thoughts for the day. And uh, thank you again for all your recipes that you've been sharing with me. So tomorrow we are going to be uh, diving into all of our usual here in the Freedom Hut, and I'm I'm really hoping to get together a uh, finish off the research I should say to do a Lepanto show, which would be coming up on. Friday, uh, because Saturday is technically October 7th, is technically Lepanto Day. Uh, but until then, please do share the podcast with friends, uh, spread around all the things we do here in the Freedom Hut. Send me your thoughts at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And as always, Shields High.